listening to the VC20 Podcast, a space for meaningful conversations and relevant teachings. Let's turn our attention to God's Word. Does that sound good? Go with me to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 is where we'll be tonight. We're continuing our sermon series called The Cruciformed Life. And I'm going to ask that you stand with me as we read God's Word together. We just stand as a way to ready our hearts to receive the truth of God's word. So let's stand as we read. I believe we'll have the words on the screens behind me as well. If y'all ready for God's word, give me a good amen. Amen. Paul says this, not that I have already obtained this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So I want to begin tonight with a little bit of a pop quiz And I'm going to ask you to actually respond to this question by shouting out your answers. What would you say are some of our cultural values? Or to say it another way, what characteristics does our culture place a particular importance on? What are the principles that sort of steer and direct our culture? Shout out a few. This is dangerous. Success, money. Shout them out to me. Thank you, Josh. What is it, Ali? Identity, individualism, great, Liz. Nice cars, says you, yeah, I I suppose, yeah. Any others? Follow your heart, who said that? Sustainability, Malaika, the theologian, Malaika, yes. This is dangerous because I'm looking for one in particular, so I'm not sure how long I should linger here. The American dream, that's great. How about this one, authenticity, Yeah. Would you say that's, a, that's a, a value that our culture esteems? We love authenticity. We love keeping it real. Authenticity has become our buying criteria. The brands that we support are the ones who have folks wearing their stuff that actually look like us, right? We don't mind them being somewhat aspirational, but it's got to feel authentic, right? It's, it's one of those words that's even hard to describe. It's a bit ethereal and intangible, but, but you sort of know it when you see it, right? We, we know when something feels authentic. Something is authentic when they have a double bottom line. In other words, we're not interested in brands who only exist for the purpose of making Money, they have to be sustainable, or they have to be clean, or they have to be green, or a portion of their proceeds have to go to support a cause that matters to us, because that's how you know that they're real. Y'all following me tonight? The new wave on social media is to put off all pretenses of perfection and show the world your true self. One of my favorite accounts on Instagram is kids are the worst. I wouldn't expect y'all to know what's up with kids are the worst because I'm not imagining many of you have kids yet. We are in a season right now in VC20 where it seems like everybody and your mama is getting engaged and we praise God for that, right? We love marriage couples. We love single folks too. But I'm not imagining many of you 
Uh, our hip to kids are the worst because you aren't with child like I am. I'm a father of two amazing little boys. My son, JR, actually just turned five years old last night, y'all. We should clap for him, let him feel loved. Love my little dude. But kids are the worst is essentially an account that uh, this mom, she, she got fed up, y'all. She got fed up with all these, uh, these model families on Instagram who have well-behaved kids and expendable income out the wazoo, and they get to travel wherever they want. She was like, y'all, that is not real life. Let me show you what life is like with real children, and trust me, y'all, it ain't pretty. Take it from somebody who knows. But it's real, and we respect it. We find it so refreshing that somebody is actually keeping it real. They're not, they're not posting the, the perfect representation of their lives, whether or not it's true or false. They're not posting the fake stuff. They're posting, the, and we swoon. We're like, thank God, finally, somebody is keeping it real, somebody who isn't fake. And this desire for authenticity not entirely, but in large part, is in response to our weariness with the demands of perfection. Follow me here. I can't fit in those jeans, and my body isn't made like the women who do, so sell me something real. I didn't get into the grad school of my dreams. I don't have a vibrant romantic life. I don't have a job that's super fulfilling, and I'm tired of pretending like I do, so let me just keep it Real. Can anybody relate to that? Anybody, anybody feel like uh, you just want to post on Instagram the reality that you work at Starbucks and you wear your sweatpants all day when you're not there? And that, uh, yes, huge, thank you, my friend. We just want to keep it real. This is in response to the pressures of perfection, but nevertheless, these pressures remain, which is in part why you see such high rates of depression and anxiety amongst teens and young adults. Because naturally, when we set for ourselves this impossible standard, or rather when the world or somebody else sets them for us, of course, our mental health is going to take a hit when we inevitably fail to live up to these impossible standards. But if we're not careful, this desire to be authentic can result in us getting stuck and becoming stagnant. The logic goes like this. We realize we can't reach that standard of perfection, so we stop trying to grow at all. Can anybody relate to that? Some of us have even felt this tension on our faith. For you, Christianity was reduced to moralism, where it was your job to be a good person, the kind of person that God will let into heaven one day. You had to be good enough. But when the weight of your sin and the reality that you will never be good enough, no matter how hard you try, when that reality sets in, you feel lost and you feel helpless and you feel alone. And so we're stuck living in this tension of wanting to be authentic and keep it real about where we are without having to settle there while still striving to grow and become the person we want to be. We're left living on the knife's edge. And we're tempted to fall one way or the other, either to, 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 to get stuck in a pattern of stagnation where we feel defeated and we resigned ourselves to the fact that this is who I am, this is who I'll ever be, so let me just keep it real. Or we succumb to the pressures of perfection and, and we put on a mask, not, not the mask that you're wearing right now, but the proverbial mask, if you will, the mask that, that says to the world, I'm good, I got it all together. Far be it from me that I would show, ever show to somebody that I have need of something, that I'm less than perfect. 
We, we live on that knife's edge. But what I want to show you tonight is that a biblical worldview, the wisdom from Scripture, actually gives us the resources to hold this tension and enables us to be completely honest about where we are while still working to become not the person we want to be, not the person with the right bodily dimensions and the HD, HDTV loft and the, and the super lucrative and ultra-fulfilling career, not the person we want to be, but the person that God God wants us to be, the person that God intends us to be. Paul would call this process pressing on to take hold of Christ. That's the title of my message tonight, pressing on to take hold of Christ. Before we go any further, let's invite God's presence and his power on his word. Father, we we submit the rest of our time to you. We thank you for what you've already been doing in our midst. We feel you, Holy Spirit, even now. Father, I pray that you would hijack this sermon, that you would infuse my words with your spirit, that you would change us, that you would bring about the transforming power that only comes from your spirit, that only comes from a a focus and attentiveness to the person of Christ, who we long to be. We long to be like, we long to be with. We fix our eyes on Jesus. Would you help us to know him more, Holy Spirit? We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. So Paul says from the jump, I am not perfect. The ESV translates verse 12 as this. It says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, I think all of us would freely admit to that, right? No, none of us in here would have a problem saying, I'm not perfect. Or as the prophetess Pam Beasley would say, Poe Buddy's perfect. Any Office fans in here? You remember that scene? To which Dwight responds, nice stroke, Pam. Are you having a stroke? And that scene was so much more funny right up until I actually had a stroke. Stroke jokes are not funny, y'all. But Nobody's perfect. None of us would have a problem readily admitting the fact that we are not perfect. But I think Paul is doing so much more here. Paul is instead saying uh, that uh, I'm not perfect. And this, 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 this reality comes from a place of genuine humility. Normally, when we would say something of the sort, I'm not perfect, that usually uh, is aroused from a place of self-justification. But for Paul, it comes from a place of genuine humility. He says, in spite of everything I've seen and done, I'm still a sinner. Now, now keep in mind the things that Paul has seen and done. He had a personal encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. There's one account in Scripture where he literally finds himself in the third heaven, and he sees things that are unspeakable. This is Paul, and it's this same Paul who says of himself, I am a sinner. I still struggle with anger. I still wrestle with temptation. Elsewhere, Paul would say of himself, I am the chief sinner. Now, what, where does that kind of authenticity come from? Where does that kind of authenticity come from? Where do you get the freedom to be real about your struggles? Not in a resigned, defeatist sort of way where you settle in and say, well, it looks like this is who I really am. But instead, you give yourself the grace to grow by being honest about where you are. Honest with God, honest with yourself, and honest with others. Where does that kind of freedom come from? It comes from the cross. It comes from the gospel. This is what this cruciform life sermon series is all about. It's about being shaped by the cross. Listen to me, VC20. The cross tells the truth about us. The cross says that we are more sinful 
than we could ever imagine. So sinful, in fact, that it took the blood of an innocent man for your redemption. We work so hard to conceal our sin because we don't want the world to know how jacked up we really are. But the cross has declared emphatically, it's already made clear that you are a desperately sinful person. Imagine with me for a moment. Imagine if every sinful act you've ever committed and every sinful thought you've ever entertained were to be projected from this screen for everybody in this room to see. Think about that for a moment. You would be utterly mortified. Well, the cross has essentially already done that. It declares that it's for all of that stuff, for all of that sin that Jesus had to die. You see, there's no room for self-righteousness at the foot of the cross. All of us who linger under, the, under its shadow, the cross has leveled the playing field for us. We are all desperate sinners in need of God's grace, but yet... Not only does the cross say that you are a sinner, not only does the cross say that you are more sinful than you can imagine, it also declares that you are more loved than you could ever dream possible. The cross says that you are unimaginably, infinitely, and unspeakably loved. The cross says that you are so loved that Jesus willingly took your sin upon his shoulders and died for you so that you could have eternal life. And remember, in Scripture, eternal life isn't a matter of quantity. It's not just about living forever. It's a matter of quality. It's about knowing Jesus. Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life, that they may know you. When Paul speaks here of eternal life, he's not talking about dying and getting to heaven one day. He's talking about living in real relationship with Jesus. Jesus loves you enough that he took your sin upon his shoulders and he died in your place so that you could have eternal life. The perfect one took upon himself all of your imperfection. You are loved down deep, the cross says. And it's from the cross that, that this freedom to keep it real springs forth. The reason why Paul can say, I'm not perfect, is because, as he says in verse 9, I have a righteousness that is not of my own. I have a righteousness that has been granted to me by Jesus. I didn't earn it. I didn't deserve it. It was given to me for free when I put my faith in him. Paul can say honestly and earnestly, I don't have it all together because in the same breath thereafter, he can say, but I have Christ. And when you get Christ, you get his righteousness. When you're in Christ, when the Father looks upon you, he no longer sees your sin, he sees his Son. And when the Father looks upon the Son, he, so too does he see you. This is what it means to be united in Christ. This is in part what Paul means when he says, I have laid hold of that. I am, I am striving to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. You ever had somebody say to you, promise you won't get mad? Any? Anybody in a relationship ever said something like, prom or, or perhaps when you were a little kid, you ever said to your parents, promise you won't get mad? What are you saying in that moment? You're saying, I want to keep it real with you, but I'm afraid for how you will respond. I'm afraid that I might be rejected. I'm afraid that as a consequence, you might love me less. Because of the gospel, you never have to say that to your father. The cross says that you are more sinful than you can imagine, but yet you are more loved 
than you could ever dream possible. I forgot to give you all my outline. What we're working toward tonight is I want to show you what does it mean to press on. The first point that I just worked my way through was pressing on with authenticity. Has that been up there the whole time, Emily? Okay, well, well, that's the first point. Here's the second point. Pressing on with grace-driven effort. There's no point in coming up with an outline if I don't give it to y'all, so better late than never, right? The church said amen. Amen. Pressing on with authenticity, point number one. Point number two, pressing on with grace-driven effort. To become all that God wants you to be, it's going to take some serious effort on your part. Now, that might sound intuitive. That might make good sense for some of you in here tonight, but for uh, a contingency of others, that's triggering because, like I said earlier, maybe you have understood Christianity as about, as about being earning God's love by working really hard and becoming a good person, the kind of person that when it's all said and done, perhaps God will let you into heaven. But there is a vitally important distinction that we need to make here tonight, and it's this. There is a difference between effort and earning. Let me say it again. There is a difference between effort and earning. Dallas Willard would say it like this. He says, grace is, a, is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Paul says, I press on. That word press in the Greek literally means uh, to chase down. It means to fight. It's actually a hunting uh, term. Any hunters in the room, like myself. It's a joke. I'm not a hunter. It means to to catch your prey. It means to seize upon. It it literally means to, to lay hold of. Paul says, I press on. And this pursuit doesn't have to be anxiety inducing or shame ridden or soul exhausting for the Christian because our effort isn't in order for God to love us. Our effort instead flows from the reality that we are already infinitely loved. Are y'all getting this tonight? Paul goes on to say, I press on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. He says, I'm working from this place of security that Christ has laid hold of me. I am forever his and there is nothing that will ever result in a loosening of his grip upon me. No mistake I ever make will ever cause him to love me any less. Paul says, I'm not working for acceptance. He says, I'm working from acceptance. Jesus has taken hold of me, so I press on to take hold of everything that he has saved me to be. I don't want one drop of his blood to be wasted. I want to become like Christ. This is what Paul means when he says, I want to know him. He means that I want to know him intimately and personally and in conversational communion with him. As I spend time with him and as I behold him, I become like him. This is what Paul means when he says, I press on to lay hold of that which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. Jesus has laid hold of you so that you might fall more in love with him. He wants you to know. He wants you to know what it is to be found in him, to participate in his resurrection life and to find ever greater and infinitely glorious satisfaction in him. I want to ask you a question. Would you say that any of those things characterize your life with Christ right now? Are you pressing on to lay hold of him? 
Are you falling? Are you find yourself falling more in love with him? If the answer is yes, then praise God. Well done. But if not, you need to ask yourself the question, why? What are you doing with your time and your energy? What are you looking at? What are you listening to? What kind of company are you keeping? Do not settle for anything less than that for which Christ died. Christ died to make you his own. Christ died so that you could have resurrection life. Christ died so that you can know him and be with him and become like him. That's what it means to press on with grace-driven effort. Grace-driven effort means that I press on not in order to get God to love me. Grace-driven effort means I press on because I am fully loved and I want to be like Jesus. I want to be with Jesus. Here's the last thing. Pressing on with a singular focus. Paul says in verse 13, one thing I do. You can hear the echoes of of Psalm chapter 27 when David says, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that one thing I seek, that I might dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble, he, he shall hide me. He shall set me up upon a rock. David says, that's the thing that I'm after. That's the thing that I've that I've set my life upon, to know and behold the beauty of Jesus. Paul says here in verse 13, one thing I do. There is a singularity to all of his pursuits. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote this. He says, purity of heart is to will the one thing. To will the one thing. It's to be animated by this one thing. It's to rouse all your resources unto the end of obtaining this one thing. That one thing being Jesus. And Paul offers us a twofold strategy for making Jesus the chief aim of our lives. He says, forgetting what is behind and straining for what is ahead. Forgetting what is behind and straining for what is ahead. And I'm going to close with this and then we're going to conclude with a song of worship. The first thing, he says, forgetting what is behind. We have so much baggage. We carry around so much baggage from the past. And this baggage has a way of hindering us from moving forward. Perhaps it's something that you've done or failed to do. A sin that you've committed. A promise you failed to keep. A word that you wish you could unsay, that you wish you could take back. And the shame of this sin just has a way of sticking. And and try as you might, you just cannot seem to let this stuff go. All the shame of all those mistakes seem to stick. You cannot unrelinquish your grip from these past mistakes. Perhaps it's something that was done to you. Someone failed to show up when they said they would. Someone you thought you could trust proved to be unfaithful. Perhaps it's because of some wounding that has been inflicted upon you. And because of bitterness or out of fear of being hurt again, you refuse to let this stuff go. You refuse to let this baggage go. And unbeknownst to you, not only are you keeping yourself in bondage, but you're keeping the other person in bondage as well. Whether it's because of a sin that you've committed or perhaps because of a sin that has been inflicted upon you, I pray and I beg that you would heed Paul's invitation tonight to forget what is in the past. There is a particular grace in being able to stay intensely present to what God the Father is doing in your life right now. 
Now, what I don't intend to say and what I don't think Paul is expressing here in this text is that is necessarily an easy process that you can at once and instantaneously forget all that stuff, particularly if you're walking around wounded because of something that was done to you. I'm not intending to say tonight that it's easy as just, just poop, you know, like our, our, our memories don't work like they do in uh, the Pixar movie, Inside Out, with just a touch, poof, we can make these things vanish. It might take some time, some deep introspection. You might want to consider getting a counselor, somebody who's equipped to guide you through the process of emotional healing and wholeness. But perhaps maybe tonight, you might take the first step. You might, you might decide for the first time to enter into that process by letting go, letting go of those wounds, letting go of that bitterness. Or perhaps you might, you might lay to the wayside the shame of all your past mistakes. Remember, this is what it means to be in Christ. It means every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, has been washed away by the blood of Jesus. Sin stains a scarlet, but praise be to God, the blood of Jesus has washed us white as snow. When you repent of your sins, God the Father cast those sins into the sea of forgetfulness, never to be remembered again. Set yourself free tonight by doing the same, letting go of what's behind. And then Paul goes on to say, I strain, I strain for what is ahead. That word straining literally means to run to the point of exhaustion. It means to lean out and to extend yourself forward. Paul says, I strain, I run to the point of exhaustion, and I have my eyes on the prize. Remember, there's a singularity to all of his pursuit and affection. He says, I'm letting go of this baggage. I'm laying down every weight and sin that so easily besets me, and I'm straining, I'm striving, I'm pressing on to the prize that is Christ Jesus. I want to show you this photo. This is a a photo. It's a painting entitled The Disciples, Peter and John Running to the Sepulcher. This is by a painter named Eugene Bernand. I hope that's how you pronounce his last name. I want you to notice the leaning of Peter and John here. I want you to notice, like you, although this, This photo here is static. You can almost feel the inertia. You can almost feel the forward momentum. They're leaning. They're striving. They're they're pressing on because they have their eyes fixed on the prize that is Christ. Is this the posture of your heart tonight? Are you leaning in or have you settled back? Have you made I was going to say, have you made peace? But I don't think you make peace with the fact that you are a sinner. I think instead you strive for all that God has said you are in Christ. Right? The curse of sin says of you, you messed up and this is all you will ever be. But the promise of the gospel says, no, no, no. You belong to Christ, and it's not about what you've done. It's about who you will be one day. This is what Paul means when he says, I want to know. I want to know what it is to, I want to live the resurrection life. I want to know what it is to the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection. Paul says, one day when I stand before the Father, and he says of me, by what account, on what merit do you have to stand in front of me today? I'm going to say, I'm with him. 
I'm with Jesus. I'm found in Jesus. I'm laying hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. The invitation for you tonight is to forget what is behind and lean in and to strive. Set your eyes on the prize and lean in to run to the point of exhaustion. Any marathon runners? Anybody proud enough to put that sticker on the back of your car? You do, Leah, don't you? 26.2 or whatever that is. Just making the rest of us feel bad. When you got to the end of the marathon, Leah, I'd imagine you weren't like ready to do a jig. You were probably just mentally and physically exhausted. The invitation from the Father tonight is to run with such a pursuit that you find yourself at his feet utterly exhausted because it's there when you arrive at the end of yourself that the Father wraps you in his arms, that he lifts you up, that he infuses you with the strength to stand and he rejoices over you. Let me pray for us as we enter into a time of worship. Father, enable us by the power of your spirit to do what so many of us have been unable to do ourselves, which is to forget what is behind. I believe that many in this room have been earnestly pursuing you, but they've done so while still clinging to all this baggage. And we're running through the terminal late, trying to catch a flight, but we're held back and held, held down and held bound by all of this baggage. Father, enable us to forget what is behind. For many, that means that you commit tonight to begin a process of healing. You may need to make amends for something you've done to somebody else. You might need to go to them and repent and pursue reconciliation. For others, it may mean that tonight you commit to begin the long process of healing because of sin that was inflicted upon you. And this wound just seems to to refuse to heal. I believe the first step toward healing is forgiveness. Father, help us to forgive as you have forgiven us so freely and richly and lavishly, Lord. Help us to press on, God, because the prize is so worth it. Jesus, you are so worth it. Lord, we love you. We're coming after you tonight. May the posture of our hearts be one of leaning in, pressing on, to lay hold of you, Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the BC20 podcast. 
Make sure to subscribe for more sermons and intentional conversations. You can also check us out online at bc20.com.